Welcome to episode two of Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall, sat in the back of Frank Warren's car. How are you, mate? You good? I'm hanging in there. Listen, we've had a wonderful week in Las Vegas where Tyson Fury did the business. We're just coming down. I think I'm on cloud seven at the moment. <laughs> uh, so therefore, episode two, we've got to keep the heavyweights rolling on in. Now, we're moving away from the world of sport. We're going into the world of entertainment to speak to your good friend... Piers Morgan. When did you meet this guy? When he was a young journalist working for the Sun newspaper. Must be, whoa, 30-odd years ago. Right then. You've got a love of Arsenal, love of sport, love of all things uh, fine dining. Let's get stuck into that conversation. The interviewer is about to be interviewed. <laughs> Frank, we're going to have to give him a grilling. He gives everybody else a grilling. This You're not is going to make me cry, Frank. There's no, there's no way in this world you could out grill Piers. <laughs> it's impossible. Talk to me about how you know each other. Uh, how did you first come into contact with Piers? I think it was going back many years ago when you edited the uh, Bizarre column. Yeah. And I brought Frank Sinatra over. Do you know, it was the, this is the, the worst moment of my life, arguably, came due to Frank. Not because of him, yeah. due to my stupidity. So I was doing a bizarre column on The Sun, the showbiz page. I'd done a few things with Frank and got to know him. We liked each other, both Arsenal fans. That you'd invited me to your box a couple of times. And he says, I'm, I'm promoting Sinatra. He's coming in for his last tour of England. And he's playing, he was playing the O2, wasn't he? Just- no, we put him on at the London Arena. London I built, Arena. I built London Arena, didn't we? London didn't Arena, that's right. Didn't physically build it. But and Frank said... Uh, I've got the other Frank, you know, the less well-known one coming in. <laughs> but he said, uh, yeah, he said, and um, you should come down. It's going to be a great night. You'll probably go out with him. I, was, I said, I wasn't really a Sinatra fan at the time. Now I'm like Sinatra's greatest fan. And I kick myself every day. Whenever I listen to Sinatra, I always think of Frank Warren because he rings me the next day. I didn't go. He rings me the next day and he said, oh, mate, you missed a night. Well, you went to where? Did you go to Scalini? Or? No, we went to, what was that? The, 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 it's gone now. Um, Ischia. Oh, yeah. Remember that he's gone. It was a really good old Italian joint. Yes. And we went there and it's All quite, night long, wasn't it? You were there to- It's a really interesting story. We got there after it closed. It was closed. And we got into the place. And uh, as we, we got a police escort. Everyone said how hard it was to get in Docklands in those days. No newspapers were based there. We built the arena. Drove there, we had a police escort. He still had his tux on from singing. Bottle of Jack Daniels, which he'd done. Done the whole lot. And he was performing the next night. And we just had it privately. And so there was a knock on the door and there was a big little bit of a commotion. And they came in, they said, it's the Duke of Westminster and we didn't let him in. And he owned the building. Really? <laughs> yeah. So he went up. <laughs> and it was it was it was fantastic. He was I mean he, he, we sat You were there, there till like five AM, weren't you? Yeah. Telling, and he was just we telling all we, the we stories. Did, we did it nearly every night and uh while he was doing the thing. But I don't know how he did it. And I was that, too busy yeah. for this. So I just wasn't a fan at the time. And then a few years later I really got into Sinatra and now I'm completely obsessed with Sinatra. Now I go and eat in all these old restaurants in Beverly Hills just to <laughs> soak in the atmosphere of the great old blue eyes and I had it handed to me on a plate. I'd have been partying all night long. By young blue eyes. Yeah, of uh, amazing. My, one of my biggest, most crushing disappointments. Because yeah. Sinatra died like within a couple of years. Ago. Yeah, a few years that later. That was his last yeah. London show, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, he, that, he may have done one after, but it was, he, that was his... That was the first song, time yeah. he ever performed in the round. Because he never came on to any entrance. He just walked onto the stage. So we, we walked through the crowd. It was like a boxer coming into the ring. Yeah. And by the time he got to the ring, there was so much love in the room for him, he was crying. Amazing. It was a brilliant night. 
So Frank, Brilliant nights. One of the greatest nights of Frank's life and one of the worst <laughs> of mine. Because I, I said, oh, I'm too busy, mate. But what were you too busy doing? Why, why didn't you go? I mean, I dread to think. I was probably a, a zig and zag album. Just <laughs> <laughs> to compound the misery. <laughs> With Simon Cowell trying to flog them to me. <laughs> you, you've both got a mutual love of sport, obviously. With mm. Frank working in the world of uh, promoting boxing. We know that you're both Arsenal fans. Mm. We know that you love cricket and what have you. Did you ever... When you started your career, were you ever tempted of moving into sports journalism, or was it always yeah, going to be entertainment? Yeah, I wanted to be a sports journalist. That was my that was my big thing when I was young. Uh, really wanted to be. I used to write cricket reports for the, <clears throat> the local papers, um, and then I always wanted to be a sports journalist. I didn't care what what even what the sport was really. My mm. hero was Ian Wooldridge when I grew up. Do you remember Ian Wooldridge, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was a On great uh, chief sports writer at the uh, Daily Mail for many years, brilliant writer, and I actually used to write to him. I've got my letters from him. And uh, he was very kind, he used to write back and encourage me and stuff. And then I just took a different path. But, I, you know, one day I might end up writing about sport because I still love it. I can imagine when I'm in my sort of 60s, 70s and the TV has decided to throw me into the, into the wood pile. I can imagine then, actually, maybe sports writing because it's such a great life. It must be a great life. When obviously Frank arrived, the first thing that you spoke to him about was Tyson's victory mm. uh, in Las Vegas at the weekend. So you've obviously got a love for boxing as well as the other two sports. I always just loved boxing. Um, been to a few fights with Frank over the years, very kindly sorted me out. And um, yeah, I, I've got such admiration for boxers. And I've got to know a few of the sort of more iconic ones over the years, which has been a great honour. Lennox Lewis, I did Celebrity Apprentice with Lennox Lewis and with Donald Trump as the host. <laughs> And Lennox and me both got to the last four. I knocked him out. And in fact, there's a bit of video where, <laughs> where Trump fires Lennox. And I, as Lennox gets up, because Lennox was sure he was going to get through to the final and I was going to get knocked out. And Trump did him. And as he went off, I just turned and went, see you, champ. <laughs> it still rankles with Lennox today. But So, uh, yeah, all I remember about Lennox was, apart from being a great bloke and, uh, and actually very proud of his increasingly brilliant record Mm. as a legacy because mm. he it's like something like 42 fights he lost twice but he went back and knocked yeah. both guys out yep. very few fighters have a record like Lennox's and his he said his legacy improves every day he doesn't get back in the ring which I thought was really he's a smart yeah. guy he, um, he didn't do what all the other guys do was come back when he was old he's always resisted he was offered 100 million I think to get back in the ring and said no and that's that's smart. We played chess. He'd been taught chess by his mum. Do you remember his mum yeah, used yeah, to sit yeah. by the, yeah. the ring? Wonderful character. And we played chess every day on Celebrity Apprentice. 39 games. He, I was my chess champion at school two years running. He beat me 38 times. <sighs> and what he would do is when he was about to checkmate me, he would stand up and he'd walk around the table <laughs> rubbing his hands. <laughs> Just yeah, to rub great, it in. Yeah. He was a great guy. And the other one I got to know really well uh, was Mike Tyson. I've interviewed many, many times. Um, went and did his podcast actually in in uh, LA recently. Pod boxing. We had a yeah. we had a great time. Really, I've always found Tyson. I, mean, I know you've had good and bad times with Mike Tyson. Yeah, yeah. I've had some good and bad with him. I mean, but you, you knew him in probably one of his worst periods. Um, I've seen him on the other side, if you like, when he's come out of it. He's a very different character now. But I mean, when people talk about boxing, I mean, it's what Frank thinks. But in my lifetime. For about two years, I I don't think anyone has ever been as ferocious as Tyson. Exciting, yeah. Box it, office. It was huge excitement, but as you say, it was those couple of years after that, the boozing, the drugging, and everything else he did. He just did not cement his legacy. Mm. Everybody thinks of him 
you know, you speak to anybody, his name comes out first, really, mm. everyone, because of that period. And it's such a shame. He could have been, he, he, I mean, he could have been the, the best of all time. And he, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of boxing history, mm. Tyson. He'll tell you about every boxer. He knows their records. He knows the fights. It was amazing. It was like being with an encyclopedia. But he's got much more mellow now, mainly because he's running a marijuana farm in Arizona. But, uh, <laughs> and I bet, but, he's be- I, bet, I, bet, I bet he's the best buyer of his products. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think all these boxers, I just admire anyone that can get in the ring. I mean, they're super fit, obviously, amazing amounts of training. A lonely place. And then, you know, they get in that ring and they're having a fight. And I've had a few fights over the years in my school days. And, you, you know, they're not pleasant experiences. I don't care who you are. And I don't care how good you are at boxing. There must be always, with all of them, an element of anxiety and fear when they get in that ring. So, yeah, when Tyson Fury, I, he's, to me, one of the most compelling characters boxing's produced in a long time. And I actually did the first interview he did when he came out of the dark side mm. and got back. And, I mean, it's one of the great comebacks in sporting history. And it helped him. Yeah. You know, the fact that, you know, how good you were with the interview, and that really helped him and helped him mentally and move him forward. Because he was, not that he was terrified, he just didn't want to do anything. And I said, you're going to, you know, we have to, let's get it on, let's get it done. I said, and, you know, and uh, go and sit, let's go and see Piers. And that's what happened. Mm. And he done a brilliant interview with you, didn't he? Yeah, and he's, a, he's just a really interesting character. What a story. I mean, people talk about Tiger Woods as being the greatest comeback, and in many ways it is. Tyson Fury is not far off. Mm. I mean, when you think how far down he went, and how, Suicidal. and then you watch the fight with Wilder, and you think, that's an amazing comeback, isn't it? I mean, in boxing, I can't think of anything quite no. like it. I think it's the greatest sporting comeback for the simple reason of the sport. Mm. It, you know, I'm not, don't get me wrong, golf, golfing, you've got to be on the money, but, you know, boxing... There's a guy hitting you, yeah. so you've got to be 100%. And, he, and what he's done is phenomenal. The performance on Saturday, and I've been in this business a long time, was the best performance I've ever seen from a British boxer, ever, because it was elite level. Yeah. And he destroyed this guy. Who and was, in America, I was in LA, and they were all backing Wilder. Yeah. Nobody assumed that Tyson Fury was ever going to get near him. They just thought the first time Tyson got lucky, he got up off the floor on that amazing moment when we all assumed he'd you know, I thought he'd been killed. And then suddenly he sort of rose from the, like a phoenix from the ashes, which sums up his life, really. But everyone in LA was like, Wilder's knocking him out. Wilder, the bronze bomb is going to take him out. And I, I actually went on Twitter, and I said on TalkSport as well, I said, I've just got a feeling about this. I said, I think that everything about this says to me Tyson Fury's going to knock him out within eight rounds. I said, because he's bulked up. I said, so's Wilder. Yep. And Wilder bulking up is going to slow him down a bit as it goes on. Tyson's going to have more power. And the reason he's done that is he's fighting in Vegas, American judges. He doesn't want to have a, a repeat of what happened last time. He knows he's got to knock him out. And I said, for that reason, I'm going Tyson Fury knockout within eight rounds. And what round was it, Frank? Seventh, which, I, which is the one I predicted. <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, yeah, great. Though. But brilliant for Tyson yeah. and brilliant for Frank. You know, no, Fra- absolutely. I mean, Frank's been there every step of the way with him. We, we've, we've obviously seen him rise, Frank, over the last year or so in America. This is a place that's been prominent in your career as well, was going to America and doing the CNN show and various things like that. And America's Got Talent, always something that you wanted to do. No, I never thought in a million years. No, I got, I got fired from the mirror after 10 years. I was the youngest editor, but then I was the youngest editor ever fired. <laughs> so <laughs> having done 10 years, so it was a, a game of two halves. And I, and I just remember, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I was trying all sorts of stuff, had no idea. 
I think I saw Frank a couple of times next in that da- period. No, the next day. Next you, day, wasn't it? We, yeah. You came the next day and the photographers, it was the old uh, Highbury Stadium. That's right. All, you know, yes, they, you know, they in sit, your box. Yeah. That's and, right. and they were sitting on the, you know, they sit on the goal line in those days, the photographers, and they were all turning, they were all turned the other way, <laughs> taking photos of beer. So it was, it was the next day, it was hilarious because... Yeah. This is the day after you got fired from Yes, yeah, so I got yeah. fired on the Friday night at six o'clock and it led the news as it had done all bloody week and it was leading the news and everyone was obviously having a street party. And then uh, the next day we played Leicester and all we had to do was avoid losing and we became the Invincibles. So it was an iconic moment for Arsenal. So actually, I didn't really care about being fired. I was just incredibly excited about what was about to happen. So I took my middle boy, Stanley, and we were in Frank's box. I just remembered, we were in your box. And the next day's papers, all the front page pictures were either me in the box <laughs> or me walking up the road with a fake balloon Premier League trophy <laughs> with a big grin on my face. It was like devastated Morgan. I was like, "Way!" Um, but what, yeah, what a day that is. We went one down. At, we were one down one at half time. Right, yeah. And I got a load of texts from friends going, when it rains, it pours, you know. <laughs> and then we turned it round and we won 2-1. And it was, uh, it was a, I mean, it went from being one of the worst days for my career the day before to one of the best days of my life the next day. So yeah, it was a, there's life for you, right? 24 hours. Though, yeah. You seem an incredibly thick-skinned human being. Mm. That particular moment there, how do you reflect on that moment there? Funny enough, everyone assumed it was you know awful. I, I felt fine about it. I felt I felt one day I'd be vindicated on the on the reasons I got fired. The whole Iraq War had become very personal for me. Uh, we'd oppose the Iraq War at the Mirror. My brother was serving in the Iraq War in Basra at the time. We ran these you know, the the pictures everyone talks about. But I had a moment about three years ago, um, obviously many, many years later, mm. where my brother organised a big army event in the, in the northern French battlefields. And we went to the Somme Memorial and all that kind of thing. Very, very moving, powerful thing. 150 of the top army from France and, and Britain. And the head of the British Army, General Nick Carter, uh, took me to a bench for a little chat as part of the piece I was writing. And then halfway through, the, he, he mentioned what had happened to me and he went just let he said I just want to let you know one thing he said you were absolutely right to do what you did he said we we knew that there were bad things going on those people had no right to be in the British army and you should feel nothing bad about that at all and that was a big moment for me that was a long time afterwards and I've always I've always held the view that I'm a massive fan of the armed forces half my family have been in the armed forces but they don't have any time for bad apples that, that do bad stuff and we know a lot more now about what was going on, sadly, than we did at the time. But, um, you know, it's, it was what it was. But I remember going, I went back to my flat in Fulham and um, I had a few very close friends came over and we ordered a Chinese, load of wine, watched my obituaries on TV, chuckled and uh, got drunk, had a laugh. And I felt this, I've been editing for 10 years of daily papers, very mm. exhausting, relentless. And I had the best summer imaginable turned my phone off didn't have to worry at night about being woken up by the news desk at 2 a.m you know with some breaking news that was all over played cricket at my highest ever batting average that summer for newick down in the east sussex league um, which was which was uh it was good it was like a 40 odd i think uh, which for village cricket was good yeah, nice. i was on fire <laughs> uh, but completely untroubled by any of the problems of editing a paper so although i loved it I kind of felt I'd done it. You know, I'd done 10 years. I think 10 years of any job, mm. actually, is enough. Football managers yeah. tend to go on the wane, most of them, after 10 years at one club. Ferguson's the exception. Benga certainly went on the wane, didn't he? Um, 
and you know I think prime ministers any ending up to 10 years I always think they go on the way and so 10 years felt right to me I then wrote a book about it all which became a big bestseller and that was it often into tv and then getting back to your question <laughs> a rather rambling way but the um America thing came about I, had, I actually had lunch with Simon Cowell up here in Holland Park uh at the Belvedere I'd taken care of him with Zig and Zag and other acts Instead of like Frank that. Sinatra. He, he, he did these, yeah. So even though I turned down Frank Sinatra for Zig and Zag, <laughs> it, it turned out. out to be a brilliant move in one sense in that Simon Cowell was very grateful to me for all the help I'd given him promoting his acts, which included Zig and Zag. And um, it was actually the Robson and Jerome. Do you remember them? Yeah. yeah. Unchained yeah. Melody. Yeah. I got really behind that. And it became one of the biggest hits of all time, actually. So Simon, had a, you know, he was like Frank. He, he remembers people that do favours. And... Um, we went to the Belvedere and he wrote on a bit of paper, I've got, I've got this idea, he said, to do a talent show. There's no opportunity knocks or the gong show in America or new faces, none of that, none of that on TV. I've just got an idea, three judges, you know, one's Mr. Mean, one's like Mother Hen, one's a bit loopy, funny, um, you know, good presenters, acts can do anything they like, you know. What do you think? Oh, that sounds great. And he mapped it all out on a bit of paper and he went, yeah, I think so too. He said, do you want to do a pilot with me? I said, Yeah. So we ended up, people don't know this, we ended up doing a pilot, uh, Paul O'Grady's Got Talent. Paul O'Grady was the host, and the judging panel was me, Simon Cowell, and Fern Britton. Yeah. And the audience was made up of all the acts, and they would come out of the audience in a studio, and they would perform, and that was it. Anyway, it was a, it was a big success, and then Paul O'Grady had a spectacular falling out with ITV, yeah. and he left. And he went to Channel 4. And ITV went, well, without Paul O'Grady, we don't think it'll work. So it went on the back burner. And then a few months later, I was gutted because I was like, this was my comeback. <laughs> and then a few, a few months later, Simon texted me saying, I've sold the rights of Got Talent to uh, NBC in America. They want to repackage it as America's Got Talent, which immediately I thought, what a great idea. And he said, we're going to need a... Um, we're going to need a judge who's as mean, arrogant and obnoxious <laughs> as I am and your name has immediately sprung to mind. <laughs> I just want to just go back a sec to the to the mirror situation. Would you class that as the lowest point of your career or has there been other bits? Funny that you enough, would class other as? people did. I, I didn't really know because I felt like it was a point of principle and I don't think you should ever regret uh, taking a stand over a point of principle. We took a massive one about the war itself, which I think we were proven completely right about. It was a total catastrophe. And I think on the issue of abuse by rogue elements of our armed forces, it's never acceptable. Hmm. And I was I was uh, confident that one day the truth would come out. So I, I just felt, look, it's going to be you know, pretty brutal in the short term. And I've certainly experienced that thing of being vilified and shamed and everything else that goes with it, which in itself is quite character building. Now you yeah. go through a tough time, you learn a lot more about yourself in moments like that, I can tell you, than you ever do from the successes. When you're successful, Frank, you know this better than anyone, when you're successful, your phone never stops, the emails pour in, the invites come, everybody wants to be your best friend. Right? And when you're not, when something goes wrong, well, it's an old cliche, but my God, you find out who your friends are and how important family is and all that kind of thing. And it is a cliche because it, actually it's true. And I can I can remember those who were there and those who weren't, and it's a good way of cleaning out your Christmas card list. I can tell you. <laughs> Does that resonate with what? Absolutely. With yeah. I mean, I've had well. my I, <clears throat> I've had my ups and downs, but without the downs, you don't appreciate the good times and the ups. 
Mm. Nothing, nothing runs smooth, is it, for everybody? Mm. And it's a sign of character that you can overcome them and come back. And Piers has been a uh, been a genius at that. He's done. I mean, he's you know, take your hat off to him and worry. You know, from well, I think you just moment to, you have to keep. I come from a quite a resilient family, you know, and I think we just the family's had a lot of ups and downs, and I think you just have to you have to learn that life is basically like a choppy ocean, right? It's wave after wave, and it's how you ride the waves. And don't let them drown you. You know, I remember, I think it was Jim Callaghan, the former prime minister, said that about being prime minister. It totally resonated with me. You know, I think for most people, you, you're going to get hit by, especially as you get a bit older, knock after knock, whether it's people that you love who die or whether it's career highs and lows, whatever it is. And it's how you deal with the rocky waves will define your life. You can either let it engulf you mm. or you can use everything as educational and say, right, what did I learn from that? Move on, but keep moving on. It's the old Rocky Balboa yeah. quote. You know, one of my favorite movie clips ever is Rocky talking to his son in the street. And it's all about life, you know, life's... Sunshine and rainbows. The whole sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, yeah. And it's not about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you, how hard you can get hit and keep going forward. Mm. And I, that, again, resonated with me. And I think it does for, obviously, any boxer, but it does for anybody. You know, because if you let the blows whack you down and you don't get up, life's going to be pretty miserable. So how, how do you deal then with, I mean, we're living in that era now of social media mm. and all I've got to do is click your name in there and see some responses to some of yeah. the things that you post out there and some of it's pretty yeah. hard going no, stuff. When you've got 7 million followers, <laughs> yeah. you, you're going to have a lot of trolls who just want to abuse everything you do. But again, reminding you of things that you did as a newspaper editor course, and various things like that. And accusing me of stuff I've never done, which just takes currency on social media and there's nothing you can do about it you can keep correcting it, it makes no actually makes it worse yeah <laughs> um i i take a view that unless i know the person and care about what they think i don't care if it was a good friend of mine who um who says something really weirdly like whoa what why why you that you know frank suddenly went on twitter and had a pop at me i'd be really taken aback and that would actually affect me because he's a friend of mine and someone I really respect and have always got on very well with. So an out-of-the-blue thing like that, yeah. I can understand why that would get to you. Why you would care about some egg troll, you know, <laughs> calling you some <laughs> name from his mum's dungeon. I mean, I just find that laughable. So I don't care about all that stuff. Uh, but social media has become a cesspit. And the only way to deal with it is robustly. You know, I'm, I'm quite aggressive on Twitter because I'm not going to take any nonsense from people. And you don't have to follow me. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very democratic choice, platform. Yeah. You, know, you follow some people. It's people that follow me and abuse me. I was like, why are you doing that? I don't get it. Why are you following me just to just to say nobody gives an f about your opinion? Well, you do. You You're following sure. me. Yeah. Um, so I find there's a lot of nonsense and hypocrisy on Twitter. And Twitter's normally also wrong about everything. You know, we live in this very illiberal liberal world, and I say that as someone who's quite liberal himself, but. It is wrong about everything because Twitter works itself up into this kind of woke, snowflakey mindset about everything. And almost everything it backs, Twitter fails. So it, Jeremy Corbyn was going to be prime minister, got, got shellacked. Hillary Clinton was a shoe in. Trump's a monster. Trump won. Uh, we were definitely going to remain in the EU. We, we left. Um, you can go on and on. And basically, Twitter gets everything wrong. So if you want to make money, my advice is work out what Twitter's position is on anything and then <laughs> bet against the, the other opposite. Way. Yeah. <laughs> and once you realise that Twitter is basically 15 20% of the population and of that, 
only probably two or three percent are ever on it at any one time most people don't ever go near twitter mm. they're not thinking like that so i think people a lot of journalists are on twitter and we all convince ourselves it's so important and it's what people are thinking often it's not what people are thinking at all mm. sometimes i write things on twitter and as i'm about to post i go mm, maybe maybe i don't and then delete it and get rid of it do you ever have a filter with it, or are you just... Not really, <laughs> because um, I have a natural editor's filter, which yeah. avoids me falling into legal pitfalls. But I do think the point of Twitter is it should be how you're actually feeling in the moment. It's like on Arsenal, I can get ridiculous, hysterical, over-emotional, because I really care. It really affects my mood. I mean, Arsenal affects my mood. I don't know you, Frank, but if we go on a bad run, I, I get miserable. And I'm not a miserable person. I'm normally glass half full all the time. But it, Arsenal in the last few years has really sucked me down a few times. The and, owners kill me. Yeah, terrible. And and you feel passionate and you get very passionate. And if you're on Twitter in a game like I, you can, you say stuff. And I go back after and go, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> and and so the only things I probably, I wouldn't even say I regret them because they're genuinely how I feel in the moment. Yeah. So should you regret a genuine emotion? I think I would I would regret things if I hadn't felt them and posted something that wasn't what I was actually thinking. But I do think the whole point of Twitter, when it's at its best, is it's real time. Mm -hmm. It's how you're feeling in the moment. And when I go back, I see the highs and lows of my career in all its guises, uh, different relationships, all the rest of it. And I think, well, that's real time. It's like a diary. Mm. You know, Do you want it to be perfect? Do you want to overthink every posting? Do you want to make it? I see some people, you know, they've spent hours crafting the perfect tweet i spend two seconds bang 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 that's just what i think so so with that in mind then obviously this week you're, you're away you're on holiday you're enjoying yourself but you've been trending on twitter this week yeah with all the caroline flack and yeah. jimmy jamil thing as we sit here right now how do you look back at it i look back at it as caroline flack was a good friend of mine and it was an awful tragedy that uh i wish had been avoided i'd been in contact with her in the last few weeks of her life and knew she was in a very bad place and felt that she was getting, you know, having to put up with people like David Walliams at the National TV Awards, whacking her and humiliating her when she was really at a low. And then I saw after she died this, this rank hypocrisy. First of all, social media attacking who had been brutal to Caroline in her life, utterly brutal, trolled her incessantly, and then the same people popping up to blame journalists, many of whom were very good friends of hers, who'd been very fair to her in her career, who she had no problem with, blaming them directly for her death. I saw that happening with three or four journalist friends of mine. I was getting it. And at the same time, I was getting messages from her best friends saying, thank you so much for all your support for Caroline. It meant so much to her. And at the same time, I'm getting people on Twitter saying, you killed her. And it, that was just disgusting. And then you had people like Jamila Jamil, you know, trying to claim some high moral ground and launching, you know, wanting to back petitions for the government to change laws to stop these terrible journalists. And I found an exchange that I had with Caroline about Jamila Jamil. And I, I thought about it carefully about whether to, to post it. And I thought, no, I'm going to do this. I'm sorry. I'm not having you taking this ridiculous high moral ground when you yourself were causing her a lot of harm. And she said, I'm really struggling with Jamila. You know, she's she's piling the hate on me. And she does. That's what she does. She's done, she's done it to me. Has a million followers. 
is very aggressive and her people come for you. And the, the lack of self-awareness of these people. And they're often people who claim to be mental health campaigners. They don't give a damn about people's mental health if it doesn't suit them. And so I found the hypocrisy disgusting. And I think Caroline would have done too. Mm. Um, ultimately, it's a complete tragedy. And no one really knows what was the, the tipping point for her, except we know the CPS just told her that they were going to uh, go ahead with the trial. That may or may not have been the correct decision. I don't know, but that, that had just happened. We know it was Valentine's Day the day before, and the boyfriend she wasn't allowed to see had posted a very loving post to her. And maybe it was a combination of those things. Uh, I don't think it was down to media coverage, which she was savvy enough to know was going to come with the territory after what happened had happened. But it was an absolute tragedy. Um, but so much hypocrisy being said about it. It really stuck in my gullet. You, you've said a lot of things, I think, that a lot of people resonate with there on, on Twitter. I know that Frank will get it, you'll get it, I'll get it. There's loads of people out there that get trolls through the way that they go about and carry, carrying on with their lives. How do we improve society? How do we change the way that people are using social media because they seem to be using it in a well, more negative than positive way? Some of it is bullying, isn't it? It yeah. is bullying, that's what it is. And they're, and they're bullies who, in the end, they're keyboard bullies. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, they wouldn't do it to you face-to-face. Mm. That's for sure. And it's just it's just, just awful. That's part of society now, isn't it? And that's... But should we accept you're not, that? But you're not, it's not quite accepting. I don't think, how are you going to change it? Well, we've lost, how, we've lost, how do you police it? We've lost the ability, I think, to debate. Right? You should be able to debate and to criticise public figures in particular uh, without people screaming abuse at you or trying to silence you from having an opinion. You know, Whether it's Meghan and Harry or Boris Johnson or Donald Trump... There's legitimate debates to be had about public figures who are publicly funded. You should be able to have that in a democratic way. That's what democracy is all about. But it shouldn't descend into mindless abuse or this kind of self-righteous, my view is the only acceptable view, and if you don't have it, then I'm going to scream at you, vilify you, shame you, and try and get you fired from your job, which I get all the time. Mm. It's just route one, social media, he doesn't agree with the mob view, therefore we have to finish him off. And they all have in their bio mental health campaigner. And I'm like, really? Really? You don't get the irony of what you're doing here with your foul-mouthed abuse? You think this is all part of your mental health campaigning? It's all bullshit. And I think that um, we've got to get back to a time when we could debate things. You know, Frank and I don't agree about everything. We've had good lively debates over the years, as you would with any friend. You know, but it doesn't mean we end up shouting abuse at each or other. Or hating each other. And I can accept that friends of mine have completely different views. I've, I've just been on my golf tour with my village mates a couple of months ago. And we were all debating Brexit and stuff in quite a passionate way. But we weren't all screaming abuse at each other or falling out over it. Mm. I just don't get that mentality. I love a good argument, but I don't believe that my view is necessarily always the right view. It's just what I happen to think. And if someone gives me a really good argument back to persuade me to change my mind, I might well do it. How good would um, Piers be to promote as a fighter? If he oh, could he fight, is. would he be good? I'd be a good showman. He'd be as good a showman as Tyson. There's no doubt about that. No, it'd be good fun, wouldn't it? We, well, he, we, he got into boxing a little bit. He sponsored uh, a fighter's boot. Bottoms of his soles. Oh, Francis, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, he rang to. He was, at, was twenty years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, he rang me. He rang rang me. Um, uh, said he wanted to sponsor the show, and I said to him because I had a column in the Sun back then. Yeah. I think, and I said the Sun was sponsoring it, and he said, uh, "What can I do?" I said, 
we get the fella's boots. And he said, great. <laughs> it's the seat of his and, pants. And he had it. And the soles of his feet. And he and it was on Sky, so it was Rupert yeah. Murdoch. So I was the rival, the mirror. <laughs> so Sky, and five times he got knocked over in three rounds, and each time he fell perfectly right in front of the, the cameras. cameras. It, it was so, you, couldn't, you couldn't have scripted it. Yeah. And the headline on the Monday Mirror was "Pride in Defeat," D E F E E T, with a big picture of him with his massive feet. I remember it, yeah. But Julie, yeah. he got twenty grand. Julie's he was quite happy. Yeah, you got, but it was. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. How you get a boxer to. Put advertising on his on his feet. I don't think they would now. He, he, he did that. I said it's Frank Maloney. I just put it to him, and uh, he went and done what he had to do. But, <laughs> but it was great. It was a great publicity. So we had had a bit of fun as well. Yeah, I, I I like the showmanship of boxing. I like the characters. That's why I love Tyson Fury and actually Deontay Wilder. They're guys that you need that kind of person in boxing. It should be ultimate showmanship yeah. and and you know the pugilist specialists as they call themselves. You need a bit of flair. What what is in your in your morning role on GMB? What is what would you see your role as? Is it to my, my, light the I fire? Just see it, I just see it as getting everyone going in the morning, creating a debate. If you want to have a, a, a nice leisurely wake up with nothing to scare the horses or upset <laughs> the kids, then watch BBC Breakfast. Right, that's what it's there for. Uh, they'll do the same old news <laughs> on the same old loop, and no one's going to be worried about it. If you want to have, I would describe it as if you want to have just a basic coffee that doesn't. You know, quite mild, a bit milky maybe. And if you want an absolute steaming, foaming, extra strong double espresso, then come and watch us. Because what we're going to be doing is taking all the stuff that people are talking about in the cafes, in the pubs, in the in the workplace, and we're going to be having those debates on air, often with me and Susanna completely opposed to each other on almost everything, and having the debate that people are having at home. That, that's how I see the job. Analysing everything in the news, and just having opinions, rather than on the one hand and on the other hand. This is this is my view. Now, what do you think, right? And most of the time, because we do polls, most of the time the viewers agree with me. <laughs> and Susanna goes, just because I'm in the ten percent doesn't mean I'm wrong. And I go, it kind of means you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, don't take this wrong way. Maybe I'm giving. A, I'm, I don't care if you ma- say it the wrong ma- way. Ma- ma- maybe I'm giving away something that you maybe you don't want our audience to hear. But I've heard so many positive things about you behind the scenes. Everybody sees you on camera. Oh, that Every, no, <laughs> no, everybody sees you. Know this, yeah, everybody <laughs> sees you on horizon, TV and they have yeah. an opinion of you. But like, obviously, Frank's a great judge of uh, character. I've heard other people speak about you as well. That you're actually quite a bit of a softie and a bit of a nice guy. Well, I think, look, I, obviously, <laughs> I play up a bit to the caricature. And yeah. I've got no problem doing that. And if you take positions on stuff, firm opinions about things, immediately you're going to be a divisive character. Because if you're doing it on the airwaves to millions of people, half will agree with you and half won't mm. in many cases. Um, and when they don't agree, fueled by social media, it can get very abrasive. But obviously I'm not, I'm not like that all the time. <laughs> you know, I like a nice, you know, go to the football, have a chat, have a couple of beers, and I'm perfectly normal. It's not like I'm spending my entire time ranting. Mm. Um, but I, like, I do like that persona because I think it's actually good for getting everyone debating stuff. And the only way you ever learn and move forward and progress and evolve as a society is if everybody learns. Mm. And you only learn by debating issues. When you're interviewing, do you ever get starstruck by anybody? Um, very occasionally. When was the last time? Uh, Ronaldo. We were, I was, we were having a conversation about Cristiano before, weren't Cristiano, we? Cristiano, who, who contacted me out of the blue to uh, say he loved my crime docs. He messaged me on Instagram. <laughs> and I thought, can't be. And it was. And he rang me up. Uh, we had a long chat. We kept in touch for a year and then I did this interview with him in Turin 
And afterwards, he took me and my eldest, he'd come out to get his Instagram picture. And uh, it was a hilarious moment at the end of my interview when it was a great interview, very moving, emotional, fascinating, inspiring. He's a really impressive guy, Ronaldo. And at the end, he came over to us, it's my son Spencer, and he's come all the way from England just to get an Instagram picture. And of course, Ronaldo has 200 million followers. So this is like God giving Absolutely, you something. You know? yeah. And he said, Come on, Spencer, come on, let's do a bit. And Spencer was almost you know, melting. And then Ronaldo said, Are you guys doing anything for dinner? I could see Spencer's eyes just popping. <laughs> and he loves three things in life, my son, uh, eldest boy. He likes UFC, sushi, and Cristiano Ronaldo. And there was a moment at 12 o'clock in this Japanese beautiful outdoor patio restaurant where he was eating great sushi, talking about UFC <laughs> with Cristiano Ronaldo. And I said to him, if that doesn't win me Father of the Year, nothing will. <laughs> um, but he was great. And, and I was slightly, slightly awestruck because he lived up to every expectation. And that's not often the case. Most people are a little bit disappointing. But Ronaldo, I just found him, he was so... Uh, Charming, mm. open, honest. We stayed in touch. We message each other all the time, which is random and weird, but we get on really well. Um, and he's uh, totally driven in a way that I've rarely seen. I've only seen it. I've seen the same thing with Michael Phelps, actually, the, the swimmer. Mm. And he, obviously, the greatest swimmer of all time. And I once asked him, why are you the best? And he went, well, why don't you ask all the others? Have they ever gone five years consecutively without a single day off? And that means doing six to eight hours of work a day mm. without a day off for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for my birthday, my girlfriend's birthday, my ex-girlfriend's birthday. <laughs> I don't think there's much room for girls when you're that dedicated. But I think he, um, I, I had the same mentality from Ronaldo that he just said, I have to train every day because if I miss a day, it's a little bit harder. I slightly lose my edge. You have to keep driving. He said, there have been other players, he said, who have been at the level of Messi and me for two, three, maybe four years. But they often end up partying and they lose that edge. Yeah. And he said the thing that he felt separated him and Messi from the others was the total dedication for 16 years. He says, that's what's unusual. We've been able to be so self-disciplined that we've kept our level at this stellar level for that length of time. And it is extraordinary. I mean, we love football. You think of Georgie Best. Yeah. His career was over at the age of 27. Yeah. Like he was finished, you know. It's, yeah. uh, and he got these, like, uh, what's he, like, Maradona, same thing. So if they, if they had the dedication. His fitness levels are phenomenal. Yeah. And if you, so there, you, there you've got another great Argentinian player, Maradona, another great Man United legend in George Best, but both of them got into partying and boozing and all the rest of it. And it costs them the legacy that Ronaldo and Messi will have. Because there's no doubt they had the ability. But these guys have something else. They've got that extra tier of dedication, which is relentless. And I think what gets them out of bed, it's a bit like the great boxers, actually. I think what made Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali so great and Foreman was that they all got out of bed about each other. They yeah. knew they had to go the yeah, extra mile because yeah. there were other greats in the, yeah. in the ring. And I think the same with Ronaldo. He, he told me, I said, who's the greatest player you've ever seen? He went, oh, Messi, Messi. He said... But that doesn't mean he's the greatest player. <laughs> and I bet if you ask Messi, he'd say the same, same thing. thing yeah. That they both drive each other to ever greater heights because they're the, to me they're comfortably the two yeah. greatest of all time. And you could take your you know Gary Lineker's in the Messi camp and it's like a fanboy with him. I'm a fanboy for Ronaldo. I actually genuinely, if Arsenal could sign one player, uh, in, in I mean they're still in their prime, aren't they? If you could sign one player 
who you would bet to win on a wet Wednesday at Wolves, I'd go Ronaldo over Messi, personally. Do you think his answer would be different if he'd have met Frank Sinatra? <laughs> it might be different if I met Messi. <laughs> uh, well, I, think, uh, I, I think. I mean, they're, they're winners, aren't they? That's the bottom line. They're yeah. winners, and uh, and that's what's frustrating when we look at you know when we look at Arsenal and think where we should be and where we're not. We just for, you know for ten years they just slid and slid. They didn't replace any really good quality player like for like. Mm. And the worry is now if they don't qualify for the Champions League, who are they going to bring in? Right, and the Bamian will leave. Yeah. And that's I the suspect, worry. Because he's been brilliant. I mean, he's yeah, one of the yeah. best players we've ever had. Yeah. I've been saying this for a while. And finally, Gary Neville said and, it the other night. And playing him in the right position. Yeah. And he, but he's also his work rate. He defends so brilliantly as well. Yeah. You know, he's just, but he, I think he's fantastic at Batman. Because yeah. he came with quite a, a sort of diva reputation. And we've seen none of that. No. And I met him at, at uh, the Emirates recently. And he couldn't have been more charming, nice. And, and he encourages the kids. And, yeah. the, and what I was in the last few, not you know, recently, since, uh, since um, Arteta come in, He's coming back and defending. You know, yeah. some serious tackles. Yeah, 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 I mean that's it, and that's what he's doing. That's, so. what, I was, yeah, that's what I was alluding to. Yeah, mm. sorry, interrupted. No, the um, I th- yeah, I mean, look, Arsenal. We've we've had it all the last twenty five yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in the glory days, and I used to go a lot with Frank then. Uh, in the glory days, it was fantastic. I mean, Wenger's first seven. Years. Well, actually, people forget because we had seven years of George Graham, where he won two league titles and a European trophy. Mm. So he achieved more in seven years than Wenger actually comparatively did in 22 years and people forget that he won a European trophy George uh, and then he obviously had the, the the problem with the bungs and he left and so on and Wenger came in and we had no idea who this guy was and then we won the double in the first season and for eight nine years he produced the most brilliant Arsenal teams I mean three great teams transformed football but he transformed football you know the fitness levels done away with the boozing there was a big boozing mentality yeah, he shut the bar he shut that down all that stuff, you know, that, I mean, the, the, the training ground was like a Formula One yeah. pit, you know, it's spotless, they had, you know, the, the physio situation was, I mean, it's, it's like an operating theatre, the vitamins, all on, on it. But everybody caught up to him and he never, he never then evolved. No. It just stayed at that level. There was but, a moment when he, he got it into his head that Spain were winning everything. 2005, 6, 7. They were winning everything. And Wenger got it into his head he had to go for that type of player. Technically very good players, perhaps slightly slighter yeah. build. You know, all the, Fabregas was his dream. Well, he, built, he was trying to build a team around Fabregas. Yeah, wasn't he? He, was, he was trying to build a version of the Spanish team because he believed that was the future of, of football. And he, he just got that so wrong because actually the Invincibles, the great thing about them was tremendous power yeah. to match the technical ability. You know, I remember talking to Paul Scholes about this. He's very interesting. He said he said the the best of the three title winning teams under Wenger, he said, was the ninety seven, ninety eight team actually, with Vieira and Petit yeah. in front of the world famous back nice. forward, Seaman in goal, Overmars on the wing, yeah. and Nelka, who was lightning fast up front they were with massive. Ian, they were Ian Wright and Burkamp and Freddie Lumbo. Yeah. Oh Ray Ray Parler. And um he said that was the most perfect team, actually, in terms of the thing. But look at the power in that team. And he said, when, even when you played them in the 2002 side or the Invincibles, he said, you'd look, you'd get in the tunnel. And Scholes is not a big guy. I was surprised how small he is when you meet him. But he's tough. And he said, we get in the tunnel. And we were used to bullying teams. He said, we'd look down and you'd see Vieira, Petit, Adams, Keogh. <laughs> he said, even Burkamp used to put the boot in. Uh, Thierry Henry, these, these big units all who could play football. 
seaman in goal, you know, or layman. I mean, layman was a, a very goal. undervalued, undervalued goalkeeper. Goal. He was the Invincibles goalkeeper and he was a total lunatic. But he was brilliant. <laughs> he was actually. a great goalie. Absolutely brilliant. And um, we just had this, this great team. So we, you know, and Benga brought in some great players. Sol Campbell was an amazing signing. Uh, Ashley Cole obviously was through the books, but he was a he was a great player, best left back of the world yeah. uh, at the time. Colo Torre was a great player. Laurent was a great player, but they were all big big guys. And then they all went. All the invincibles got sold within about two years. And he, you know, you think when he came in, France was the top nation, won the World Cup, so we got a lot of those good French players, yeah. which obviously he had the in on and grabbed them quickly. Yeah. So we got some great players in. What was, your first, what was your first game that you went to? It was, uh, I was 10 and it was Arsenal-Man United. But my first love of the game and Arsenal was Charlie George in 71. He had the best chant ever. Yeah. Charlie George, George, superstar, looks like a girl and he wears a bra. <laughs> that was the North Bank tribute to Charlie. And uh, he was just fantastic. He, I had his poster on my wall. I had the, the 71 double winning team as well. I got to know Bob Wilson quite well in recent years and he was one of that team and they were great. Actually, fantastic team. Frank McClintock's team in that era. But Charlie George was fantastic because he'd been on the North Bank when he was mm. like 16. And then there he was leading the line. You know, he was the, he was the fan who jumped over the barrier and ended up scoring the winner at Wembley. It was fantastic. Well, that's when the FA Cup mattered too. Yeah. So it was a big thing. So from the age of five or six, I was an Arsenal fan. And then my dad took me Arsenal Man United. I think we won we won it quite easily. And I just John Radford was up front uh with Ray Kennedy. And uh what a team. It, it was just brilliant to watch. And I was totally first time I went out and I think everyone remembers this when you walk out into a packed stadium for the first time and you just feel your heart go and then you and I said to all my all my sons are big Arsenal fans when I had the same conversation with all of them. I've had just had it with my daughter. She's just turned 8 when they're all 7 sat them all down and I said look, look I don't mind if you want to support another team okay I really don't and they go little wide eyes open up they go really dad I said no really really Are you sure dad I said yeah as long as you don't mind if I never talk to you again as long as you live you are going to be an Arsenal fan because I cannot stomach the thought of having any other shirts in this house or taking you to any other game but Arsenal. In fact, I'm taking my daughter in, in, uh, to the West Ham game on the, in a couple of weeks and um, it's going to be our first game coming with one of her brothers. And it's a, it's a big moment, you know. I've got her a Bamiyang shirt. She's got a big bear called, called Pierre. And it's, we're all ready now to blood her. <laughs> the next generation. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the future then, What's left for you? Are you going to keep getting up at crack of dawn in the morning? Well, I've just, signed, morning, I just signed up for two more years of the morning show. Uh, two more years of the live stories show that I do. So I'm doing those. Um, I do these crime docs in America. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty busy with that. And I do columns for the Daily Mail um, for their American site. So I'm, I've got a pretty busy portfolio. But in two years' time, I don't know, it might be time for something different. Completely different. Like? I don't know, I have movies. I mean, I... <laughs> You laugh. Uh, I've been I've been in eight movies playing myself. They have grossed a total box office grossing of over two billion dollars. Here we go. And they're all available on IMDb. And my last movie role was in Entourage, a movie, and I got four minutes of airtime. So it's been a steady upward graph. And I'm the two billion dollar kid. You walk into a mo- Hollywood movie studio and you say, I've, "I've grossed two billion with my cameos." I've been in some big ones, mate. Flight with Denzel Washington. The campaign with Will Farrell, 
World War Z, Brad Pitt. I opened that movie. Uh, Entourage. I uh, had my own trailer on the set for that. Um, uh, what other ones have I been? Uh, the Criminal with Kevin Costner. Ended up watching the the first cut of that with Costner and five other people in a little place in, in L.A. And he was like, what are you doing here? I went, I'm in your movie, Ken. <laughs> I said, I could ask you the same question. You're in mine. <laughs> he was interesting, Costner, because he said, it's quite an interesting thing about life. He said, because Tin Cup's one of my favourite films. Right? I like golf, play golf. And if you, if you watch Tin Cup, you don't know. And it's the one where his character plays the kind of, you know, down on his luck guy. And then you've got Don Johnson playing the cocky American uh, pro. And they get to the final of the US Open. And then all he has to do is get up, lay up and get it on the green for three and he'll win the US Open. And instead, because he's got this instinct to go for it, he goes for it, it hits the green, rolls back into the water. He then takes like seven or eight shots, blows the US Open and everything else. But he gets the girl. And I, we were talking about it. And I said, uh, he said, which one are you? I went, your character every time. I just think the whole idea of laying up at anything, taking the easy option, is always wrong. He went, I totally agree. And he said, you know, there are two types of people in the world I've met. He said, since Tinkup, the ones who instinctively lay up all the time and play safe, and the ones who take out the wood and go for the green. I went, you'd always rather be that guy. And he said, and you'll always get the girl. <laughs> <laughs> What a perfect place to finish. Piers, thank you so much for My your pleasure, hospitality Chaps. in the house. Um, superstar. Thank you. Terrific. Pleasure. Thank you. There you go. Episode two done. If you missed the first episode with Tyson Fury, it is still available on iTunes and on Acast. And if you could do us a little favour to help us be boosted in the charts, give us a little bit of a five-star review, write your reviews uh, and your comments and what have you, tell us how good you think this is, and we'll obviously continue to endeavour to bring you more. Another one on the way soon. So make sure you hit subscribe. 